Good morning, church. Please stand up for the scripture reading, Matthew 25, verse 31 to 40. Verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when we saw thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer, and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of those least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Terry, opportunity this morning to share the message. Um, when Pastor had mentioned that he would like me to share the message today, he said that I can take my Heritage Discipleship Institute 10 minute presentation and basically use that for the sermon. And so it's sort of an extended remix of that one. I mentioned that to Carrie, and without skipping a beat, Carrie went, Witcher, Witcher, woo. <laughs> And then Jeff this morning actually mentioned that we're doing an extended remix of Vinny's testimonies on the radio tonight. So it's going to be a good day. So as we get started here this morning, let's go ahead and turn in our Bible to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17. Uh, I want to thank Lebo for reading this morning from Matthew 25. It was awesome. So these two passages are going to be connected for the message. So Luke 17, 11 through 19, read with me. I'll read and you can listen. And it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him 10 men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, go, show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, arise, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you today for allowing us the opportunity in this country, God, to gather, to worship you, and to listen to your word, Lord. I just pray that you bless the, the message and bless each one who hears it today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Jesus heals ten lepers. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, Surely you have heard this story. Um, if you grew up in church, this is one of the stories that they teach in Sunday school. And the main takeaway from this story is, I believe, almost always 
thankfulness to God. So we are to be thankful to God for the little things in our life. We're to be thankful for the bigger things, the miracles. We're to be thankful for our salvation, for the hope of heaven. You know, and this principle is just littered throughout Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New. Uh, Just as an experiment, I literally the other day just took my finger and pointed at any random verse and it used the word thankfulness in the verse. We see it in Psalm 69.30, And I will praise the name of God with a song, and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. First Chronicles 16.8 says, Give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. And one of my favorites is Jonah 2 verse 9. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So we see praise and thanksgiving in the scriptures, and we see it in different forms. We see it in the form of a song. So think about when Israel had been delivered from captivity in Egypt, and God opened up the Red Sea, and they crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground, and then God closed up the Red Sea on their enemies. And in Exodus 15, we hear the song of Miriam and Moses, so thankful for what the Lord had done. Deborah and Barak in the book of Judges, there's a similar story where they defeat their enemies and they sing a song of praise to God. Hannah sings a song of praise when God gives her the baby that she had been praying for after being barren for so many years. The people of Israel sing songs. Mary, when she is pregnant with the Savior of the world, she sings a song in Luke chapter 2. We also see praise and thanksgiving in the Psalms. We read from Psalm 69 just now, but so many of David's Psalms involve praise and thanksgiving. Uh, Sometimes they don't start out that way. He's crying out to the Lord for something to protect him from his enemies, but by the end of it, he's usually thanking the Lord. Um, But not only David, Solomon, Asaph, the sons of Korah in their psalms are so often thankful to God. And then we also see it in prayers. Uh, We read a verse from Jonah chapter 2, which is written as a prayer from the belly of the whale. He is praying to God and being thankful. Uh, Leah, in the book of Genesis, she has a fourth son, and she names him Judah, which means praise, and she says, I will praise the Lord. And then, of course, most importantly, Jesus in the Gospels is often thankful to his father. Um, We see in John chapter 11, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead, it says, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. The thankfulness continues through the epistles. We get to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And I just love how the word sacrifice is used. It's not an animal who is slain like in the Old Testament times. It is our praise and thanksgiving that is a sacrifice to God. And then turn all the way to the end of the Bible, the last page or two, in Revelation 19.5, in the throne room of God, it says, And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. So this is usually the takeaway from this story when Jesus heals the ten lepers. And if you need to hear that this morning, that Living a life of gratitude is going to change everything for you. I pray that you hear that tonight. 
Um, it, it will change. I promise you that. It has changed my life to just wake up in the morning and be thankful for every breath that I take, for everything God does in my life. And really, that is from the point of view of the ones being ministered to, the ten lepers in the story. But that's not actually what I'm going to preach about today. I'm going to preach about the perspective from the one doing the ministering. I read this, you know, so often you can read a scripture a hundred times, and maybe the hundred and first time you get something different out of it. And so when I read this scripture a couple months ago, I looked at it from a different point of view, and I looked at it from the perspective of the one doing the ministering. Now, I have to be careful here because the one doing the ministering is Jesus, and we can't fully see from God's perspective. But Jesus was fully man and fully God, and I do think that God, in his infinite wisdom, gives us a glimpse of what it was like for Jesus in this moment. And I can almost hear the disappointment in his voice um, when I read verses 17 and 18. Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save the stranger. So I believe God gave us the perspective of the one doing this ministry. And so what I want to look at today from this passage is three good reasons to avoid personal ministry. Three good reasons to avoid personal ministry. I like that some of you guys laughed. That was the appropriate response. But stick with me if you think I'm crazy. All right, so three good reasons to avoid personal ministry. First, let's just quickly define what personal ministry is. I would say that personal ministry is ministry outside of your official capacity at the church. So I think it can be related to what you do in the church, but it's outside your official capacity at the church. So three reasons to avoid that. So the first reason... You can follow along with me in your notes. Uh, The first reason is personal ministry is inconvenient. Personal ministry is inconvenient. And we see this in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, And it came to pass, as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. So when the King James says, through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, another way to say that would be along the border of Samaria and Galilee. So I put this map on your screen, and you guys can see Galilee highlighted in the north there next to the Sea of Galilee. And then you see Jerusalem about two-thirds of the way down further south. So if you were making a trip here, you would just automatically take the most direct route. You would go from Capernaum, which was Jesus' home base here up at the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and you would just basically follow the roads and go straight down to Jerusalem. Now, we do know that Jesus, at least at one point, did take this route. He took it in the reverse, going from Jerusalem back up to Galilee. And we see this in John chapter 4, when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. John 4.4 says, and he, Jesus, must needs go through Samaria. So we learn from verse 11, though, that that is not the way that Jesus took to Jerusalem this time. He went around Samaria, which was the much more traditional route. Jews avoided interacting with Samaritans. So this is the route that, in this case, Jesus took on his way to Jerusalem. So it would have been inconvenient. Why? Well, it added about 40 miles to the journey. So if you took the direct route, it would have been about an 80-mile journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And if you went the other way around, it would add 40 miles to that, about 120 miles. So Those of us thinking of modern transportation, buses, cars, planes, trains, you know, 40 miles is not a big deal. But imagine you're traveling on foot. Imagine you need to bring water, 
food, provisions, money, clothing. So to add four, five, six, seven days to your journey, it definitely would have been inconvenient. And not only that, the roads were dusty and dangerous desert roads, specifically when you got onto the other side of the Jordan River. So going this path, you would cross the Jordan River two separate times, and while you were in what is modern-day Jordan, it would look a little something like this. It would look like desert and wilderness. Uh, I took this picture when I was in Jordan in October, um, looking out over where Petra is. Petra is inside there. Um, you know, and it was a beautiful overlook. But can you imagine thinking to yourself, I have to go from point A to point B on foot through that. No hotels, no gas stations, no grocery stores. Um, I took this video actually on the Israel side of the Jordan River. And, you know, this is what it looks like down near the Dead Sea, down near Jericho. Um, you know, I was on a paved road in a vehicle, and this video sped up about five times. But you can see how it would be, even on an unpaved road, traveling by foot. You know, the sun is beating down on you. It's dusty. There may be danger around every single corner. And as you go, it definitely would have been difficult, as opposed to traveling straight there from Galilee. So the roads would have been dusty and dangerous. You would have had to cross the Jordan River twice. And another reason why this journey would have been inconvenient is because the elevation has a drastic drop from the Sea of Galilee and then drastic rise in elevation. So you may or may not know that Jerusalem is on a mountain. You know, the Bible says many, many times in different ways that Jerusalem is on top of a mountain. And I'll read just one verse from Micah 4, verses 1 and 2. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, for the law shall go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, I've been to Jerusalem twice, and to me it doesn't seem like a mountain. It doesn't seem like it's on a mountain, but I realize that that's because of my bias. I'm from Colorado. I grew up in the Rocky Mountains, about 15 minutes away from Aspen. This is a picture I took in Aspen a couple years ago. And the elevation there is 7,908 feet above sea level. So when I think of mountain, when I think of the word mountain, you know, I think of really high peaks. And in fact, when I was 10, we moved to Colorado Springs, and you walk out my parents' front door. It's not a fancy house or anything, but you see Pikes Peak. So whether it's the summer which is pictured here on the left, or the winter, um, you see a mountain that is 14,115 feet tall. So when I think of the word mountain, I have to realize that I'm a little bit biased. So I wanted to put the fact that Jerusalem is on a mountain, I wanted to put it in context. So I looked at the 50 largest cities in America, population-wise, and I looked up what their elevation was for their downtown areas. So if each one of these dots down here is a uh, city in America. So Jerusalem is 2,490 feet above sea level. So that's where the old town of Jerusalem is, where the temple was. So it's about half a mile up. So I looked at the 50 largest cities, and I found that only two of them in America are higher than Jerusalem. So El Paso sits at 3,700 feet above sea level, and Denver is 5,280 feet, a mile high. That's why they call it the Mile High City. So even in modern times, it is very uncommon for a large city to be set at a high elevation. So think about even in ancient times. So it would have been definitely unique that Jerusalem was up so high. 
But not only that, Jericho, um, this is a picture of a mosaic in Jericho, the lowest place on earth, 1,300 feet below sea level. So as far as land above water, this is the lowest place on earth. And as I did some research, uh, Jericho, even like in its higher places, is still about 800 feet below sea level. So you can imagine as Jesus is traveling by foot, he goes from about sea level at the Sea of Galilee, goes all the way down to 800 feet below sea level, and then very pretty quickly goes back up to Jerusalem about half a mile up. So this would have been an inconvenient trip because of the distance, because of the danger, and because of the drastic elevation. And yet, here Jesus is in verse 12 encountering these 12 lepers who also need his help. So he's on an inconvenient journey, and now he's inconvenienced by having to help these 10 men. Okay, the first reason to avoid personal ministry is personal ministry is inconvenient. The second reason, personal ministry is complicated. Personal ministry is complicated. So I see as Jesus approaches these 10 lepers at least two reasons why it was complicated for Jesus to minister to these 10 men. Um, And the reasons were the culture and the law. Okay, so the culture. We already talked about that Jesus went around Samaria, and that was the more traditional route going from north to south to Jerusalem. Well, why? Why was that the more traditional route? So 700 years before Jesus was born, the northern tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes of Israel, they were attacked and captured by Assyria. So what happened? Well, Assyria took slaves, they took captives away from the land of Israel, but they left a few in the land. But then they also filled the land with Gentiles, with Assyrians, with other Gentiles. And what happened was the Israelites in the land mixed with the Gentile people, and they created a new ethnicity that is now, was now known as the Samaritans. Now, this was a big no-no in Judaism because God over and over warned the Jewish people, do not give your sons and daughters to the Gentiles. And so the fact that they did that created this rift between the people who were 100% Jewish and the people who were mixed. So we see this when Jesus does meet the woman at the well in John chapter 4. It says, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me? which am a woman of Samaria. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So this woman really confirms for us the animosity that was felt between these two people groups. And not only culturally were they animus, um, there was also a spiritual animus. You know, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So in Samaria, outside the city of Sychar, where Jesus met her, which is in the Old Testament, we call it Shechem, there was a mountain called Mount Gerizim, and that is where the Samaritan people would go and worship. And for hundreds of years up until this point, that is where they decided was the place to worship. But the Jewish people, of course, would go up to the mountain of Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And she was saying, which one is right? So this, again, it just confirms this cultural difference here. And then Jesus used the cultural difference when he gave the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. So when a lawyer asked Jesus, you know, who is my neighbor? Who is this neighbor that I'm supposed to be loving? And uh, Jesus says, well, it's the Samaritan. And he tells this story. So the Samaritan takes care of a Jew in this story. And so these two opposing people groups here, Jesus is saying, no, that is your neighbor. Um, So that is the cultural difference. And then there's also the complication of the law. The complication of the law. So 
We think about the last few years with the coronavirus pandemic, and we think that maybe we created the idea of a quarantine. Well, we didn't. Um, it was God who created the idea of social distancing, and he did it way back when in the law of Moses. And the reason he did that was not to discriminate against those who had leprosy, this contagious, terrible skin disease, but he did it to protect those who were healthy, as the ones with leprosy tried to become cured. So God said in the law, it says, And the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent, and his head bare. And he shall put a covering upon his upper lip, and shall cry, Unclean! Unclean! All the days wherein the plague shall be in him, he shall be defiled. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone without the camp. That means outside the camp shall his habitation be. So there were these two complications as Jesus comes to the ten lepers. And even with the complications, Jesus does follow the law in this case. You know, sometimes that people would ask the question, was Jesus actually following the law in the miracles that he did? But in this case, I think that it is very clear because he heals them, not by touching them in this instance. He heals them with the word of his voice. Verse 14 says, And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go, show yourselves unto the priest. So he is specifically referencing the law of Moses, where Moses had said, You know, if you are healed of this contagious skin disease, go, show your skin to the priest. And the priest is the one who's going to confirm that you are actually healed. And something similar in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus heals another leper. So the second reason we see to avoid personal ministry is that personal ministry is complicated. Okay, so now we get to the heart of the matter. The number three reason to avoid personal ministry is personal ministry is disappointing. Personal ministry is disappointing. So I referenced this at the beginning where Jesus, we can hear it in his voice as he is speaking to the Samaritan saying, where are these other nine? So in this case, ten lepers we know were healed, yet only one of them returns to thank Jesus. And the other nine, it seems, don't even look back. So we would consider this a 90% fail rate. Um, and then the one who does come back, Jesus says he's a stranger. So from this, it's implied that there are both Jews and Samaritans in this mix of ten men. And the fact that the Jewish people didn't even come back to think there would be Savior and Redeemer. You know, the Jewish people should have been looking for their Messiah. They should have known their scriptures. And they should have known that he was going to come and heal the people. And so the fact that these nine men were the beneficiaries of that healing and the fact that they did not recognize their Messiah would have been disappointing to Jesus. So three reasons, three good reasons to avoid personal ministry. Personal ministry is inconvenient. Personal ministry is complicated. Personal ministry is disappointing. So if you're following along in your notes, you should have the first page filled out here. And what I want you to do is take your pens and cross it out. Take your pens and just make a big X over that page. Not because those reasons are not true. We went over why they're true. And not even because they're not biblical. The reasons actually are biblical. We see in the biblical text that that is true. But because I believe the greater point in this passage of Scripture is to embrace personal ministry. Three good reasons to embrace personal ministry. So let's look at those three reasons. 
So the first reason is that personal ministry makes an impact. Personal ministry makes an impact. So, you know, we said that Jesus was on an inconvenient journey and was inconvenienced by these ten men. Well, we know that in Jesus' case that wasn't true. Jesus was God. He said in John 8:58, before Abraham was, I am. And so he was all-knowing. He was omniscient. So it's not even that he knew he was going to encounter these ten men. I believe he went there at that specific time to meet them. I believe that it was a divine appointment. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. So Jesus had this mission that he wanted to heal these ten lepers. And it was his divine appointment. And he certainly had an impact on them. Can you imagine the impact he would have had on these ten men that were completely separated from society for all this time. And here they could be reincorporated into society. So I'm going to use a couple personal examples this morning. I hope you forgive me. Um, This is a picture of my family in maybe about 1983, 1982 maybe. I am about four years old sitting on my dad's lap all the way on the left. So we look a little bit like the Smith family in that we had three older boys (laughs) and one younger girl and we were all blonde. Uh, We look a little bit like the Stalcup family in that my dad is a cowboy. Um, As long as I've been alive, 44 years, I've never seen my dad wear a pair of dress shoes. He always wears cowboy boots if he's not wearing sneakers. But, you know, my parents were the type of people who were devoted to personal ministry. So my dad was a pastor in the church. We lived outside of Aspen, as I mentioned, until I was 10 years old. And he was a pastor of the church. But even before I was born, before my dad was a pastor, after he was not a pastor anymore, my parents would bring strays into the house. Um, You know, people would come and they would live in our house for not just a weekend, not just a week, but sometimes for extended periods of time. And this happened in 1983. And I actually doctored this photo. If If you look really closely, you can see a line up toward the top because the actual family photo was this. We had two foster brothers for nine months when I was about four or five years old. So those foster brothers were named Chris and James. And let me tell you a little bit about Chris and James. So Chris and James were half Native American. Their mother had had them when she was living in a commune. So they were being raised in a commune. Their grandparents went to visit them in the commune, and they saw that the two boys weren't being properly educated. They weren't given proper guidance on behavior. And so their grandfather decided to actually take them with the grandparents and raise them themselves because the daughter just did not seem capable of raising these boys the right way. Promptly thereafter, the grandfather passed away. I think it was slightly unexpected. So it was just the grandmother who was in her 70s, and she was raising these two little boys, Chris and James. So the grandmother moved to Colorado, not far from where we lived, and she started coming and attending our church. Now, Chris and James were about the age of my older brothers, maybe sort of in between. And so we started bringing them over on Sunday afternoons or sometimes during the week with an activity. My parents would invite these two little boys. Well, one day, their 70-something-year-old grandmother decided that she couldn't do it anymore. So she came and she dropped these two little boys off on my parents' doorstep. And she told my dad, you're going to take care of them from now on. So this wasn't specifically in the realm of being a pastor of a church, but my parents were just the type of people that they would take somebody in. So these boys lived with us for nine months. 
and we really incorporated them into the family. They went to Boy Scouts, as you can see here in this picture. Um, they went to church with us. You know, they were in school every single day, punctual. Um, you know, and it wasn't that my parents had a ton of extra energy or time or finances, but they just realized that this was a ministry and could be a ministry to not only their grandmother, but also to these boys. And it certainly had an impact. You know, it um, gave the boys a stable home for nine months. After that point, they were adopted and they moved uh, to Denver. Um, But the impact was for nine months, you know, they were going to church. They were stable. They had somebody to help them with their homework. And so there was that. And then it also filled the gap between their permanent placements. So they were permanently with their parents and then permanently with their grandmother. And then eventually they would be permanently adopted. But it filled the gap um, for those nine months when they didn't have anywhere else to go. And then third reason why this had an impact is I think it inspired others. You know, it inspired the people who were coming to my dad's church, you know, when they would see our family taking care of these two needy boys. Um, I believe it inspired people in the community who would see our family of now eight all out in the community together enjoying ourselves. Um, But I didn't realize quite how far the inspiration went. So a few years ago in 2017, I put together uh, anniversary book for my parents' 50th anniversary. And one thing I did was I emailed out to my cousins and I said, can you just send one story that you remember from growing up with my parents? And my cousin Ryan, just completely unexpectedly, he sent a message and he, you know, he is the ex- chief executive offer, officer of a company called Compass in Nebraska. And it is a faith-based foster care company. And he wrote this. He said, whenever I would go to grandma and grandpa's house, They had a picture of your family in the basement. There were two additional boys in the picture that I had never met. And it was the only memory I have of foster care when I was young. We were pretty sheltered in northwest Kansas. Knowing what I know now, I understand the joys and challenges of opening up your home to, quote, strangers. My wife, Danielle, and I have had about 20 foster children come to live with us through foster care over the years. Jim and Mary were practicing radical hospitality and they made an eternal impact. So a man who now for 15, 20 years has worked in the foster care industry, this was his first introduction. So personal ministry makes an impact. The second good reason to embrace personal ministry is because personal ministry is our commission. So in the passage that Lebo read this morning, Jesus is having a discourse. It wasn't long after he healed the 10 lepers And he is speaking to his disciples and and others. And he says, there's going to come a time when I'm going to sit on my throne and I'm going to divide you between my right and my left. No offense to this side of the church here. Um, And he said, the ones on my right are going to be my followers and the ones on the left are going to be those who did not follow me. And the marker, the marker for his followers is going to be this personal ministry. So Jesus said, I was a stranger and you took me in, you know, and that can certainly apply to foster care. You know, I think of Rob and Annika and what they're doing, um, taking people into their house for any number of days or weeks or months. But Jesus also lists things that are easier than, let's say, taking in children for nine months. He says, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, give clothes for the needy, Comfort the sick. Visit those in jail. So he's listing off things that all of his followers 
can do. And in fact, he's saying that this is a mark of a true follower of mine. So we think of the plague, the pandemic that we've had recently, um, not exactly leprosy, but certainly it was a difficult time. And, you know, there were a lot of people that did personal ministry within that time. You know, Pastor and Debbie, you know, it is not Pastor's job to go grocery shopping every week for people who are shut in in his house. But Pastor and Debbie did that. And they did it for months on end. Um, I think of Vinny and Grace and how they cared for Henry Mays until he passed away from COVID when he was in a nursing home. Um, and there are so many other examples. I don't have photographs of all of them. But I know that so many in our church served others when it was during the height of the COVID pandemic. And I even think of, you know, when I got COVID, you know, people would offer to bring me food. And then when somebody else got COVID, I would offer to bring them food. So it was a beautiful way that we served each other. Another thing that we do is the Heritage of Faith Conversations radio program. So every week we have a Bible study online. Um, But one of the reasons we do it is for the call screening. So we do call screening every night for an hour. And this is a personal ministry. Yes, it's through the ministry of the church. But people sometimes who have no one else to talk to will call in and will ask for prayer. And I think of people like Anthony I hope you don't mind me calling out. But on Tuesday night, Anthony said, you know, the fact that Raul, Wanda, and Felicita have cared so much for him over the years, he just feels so cared for by our church. And we met Anthony through the radio program. Um, Esther Hahn, you know, right away, I think it was our very first program in 2020, she helped Brother Singh, this man who called in with eye problems, and she helped get him medical care. You know, so it's not just answering the phone and talking to somebody for five minutes. Sometimes, like Raul or sometimes like Esther, you spend excessive amounts of time outside of that. And your whole point is this personal ministry. Back in February, we had a caller named Angel. And he requested a callback because he was um, unsure of his salvation. He wanted some assurance of salvation. So I I called him back later that week. I did a little bit of preparation. Okay, this is how you know you can be assured of your salvation. So I I gave him a phone call. And that phone call turned into two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight phone calls. And over the course of talking to him, you know, in addition to the assurance of salvation, he said he had a deep depression that had come over him in recent years. And so we talked about it. Yeah, I could just pray for you, but let's talk about it. Why are you depressed? Why is this heaviness falling over you? And he said, well, you know, I can't really go out. I can't really see people. I can't go outside and get some sun because I have diabetes. And, you know, I always have to be near a restroom. And I talked to him on Thursday. He said I could share this. Um, and I said, well, how long has it been since you've been to the doctor with your diabetes? And he said, I haven't gone to the doctor since COVID. So this was coming up on three years. And I have diabetes in my family. And I said, Angel... You can't let diabetes go untreated. You have to go to the doctor. Promise me that you're going to go to the doctor. Because up until that point, you know, he would go out to get groceries at the grocery store and then come home. And that was the extent of his leaving the home, really, for three years. And then he said, you know, in addition to that, I'm really having trouble reading. Okay, you're having trouble reading. What's, what exactly is wrong with your eyesight? You know, and it took a little while to figure out, okay, one of his eyes is false. He has a false eye. And then the second one, he was losing his vision in that eye. So he would use a magnifying glass to even read scripture. But it was so difficult for him that he said, 
even when I read something, I'm focused so much on reading it that it goes right out of my head. I don't even know what I just read. So I said, Angel, promise me, go to an eye doctor this week. You know, there may or may not be a solution to your eye problem, but go to the eye doctor and find out. So Angel went. He went to the doctor to work on his diabetes. He went to the eye doctor. And at the eye doctor, they said, you need cataract surgery. You know, so they scheduled him for a cataract surgery. And about a month ago, he had cataract surgery. Well, praise God, Angel can see. You know, he's still going to have to wear a prescription eyeglass for his eye, but he can see and he can read the Bible and he can sing hymns out of a hymn book that he owns. So I I asked him on Thursday, I said, you know, Angel, when I first talked to you back in February, you said that there was this dark cloud of depression over you. You know, has that lifted? And he said, largely it has. Not 100%, but largely it has. So since that time when I talked to him, he's now going to a local church there in Jersey City. He opened up his blinds every day. The sun is streaming in. He sings hymns, as I said to you. He's okay now going outside for extended periods of time. And his life has changed. He can see. He can read the Bible. Now, I don't give you this testimony because I did anything so great. All I did was talk to somebody on the phone for a total of maybe four hours. You know, and so I, I give you this testimony to say that each one of us here can do at least that. We can give food to the needy. We can care for the sick. And I think of Hebrews 13:2, which says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So I'm not 100% sure if angel in Jersey City is an actual angel, but I think that this verse applies. Okay, so personal ministry is Jesus' commission to us, seen specifically in Matthew 25. So three good reasons to embrace personal ministry. Personal ministry makes an impact. Personal ministry is our commission. And personal ministry displays the glory of God. Personal ministry displays the glory of God. So in verse 15, we see this so specifically. It says, And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. So this Samaritan was healed by Jesus, but somehow he knew that it came from God. So he really put together this idea of Jesus and God in combination here, and he glorified God with a loud voice, it says. So when we talk about disappointment, I would say that all of us probably here have experienced disappointment in personal ministry. You know, if I ask for a show of hands, and I'm not going to, You know, have you ever spent time, energy, effort, prayer, maybe finances, trying to help somebody in some way through the power of the Lord? And yet that person either rejected you, walked away from the faith, maybe left the church, and you feel disappointed. But I think one thing this passage does for us is it tells us that personal ministry can both be disappointing and display God's glory at the same time. It can be disappointing and it can still display God's glory. So we think of the nine who left. You know, it said, I said they didn't look back. But their testimonies reverberated after that moment. Just think, they go back into their village 
They go back into their home and they say, I'm back. And maybe their loved one backs up a few feet and says, you are? How did, how did that happen? And they say, you know that Rabbi Jesus that everybody's talking about? He healed me. Are you sure? Yes, I went to the priest. I showed the priest and he said, I've never looked better. And so even the nine had this testimony of what Jesus did. And then here, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about it. So their testimonies have reverberated throughout history, displaying the glory of God. And then on the flip side, you know, so often people who you minister to, they are thankful and they do glorify God. And in those cases, we get not only heavenly blessing, but we get an earthly reward. You know, how often have you also been in a situation where somebody just tells you, I'm so blessed by what you've done for me. So one more illustration. This is a, another family illustration. So this is a picture of me when I was about 10 or 11 and my cousin Rob, who was maybe eight at the time. This is, I think, 1990 maybe. Um, and then here's a picture more recently, a couple years ago. Rob outgrew me. If you think I'm tall, Rob is about 6'6". Six, six. Um, his brother maybe 6'8". So that is a recent picture. And then here's a picture of Rob with his wife, Tiffany, his three daughters, Juniper, Imogen, and Mirabal. So Rob is, was the, I believe he was the head mechanic at Alexis in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. You know, God had given him a passion for cars, and he was experienced, and he had all this skill. And so Rob is the type of person where if he passed somebody on the road who was pulled over, he would stop. You know, there's just that type of person who would never drive by somebody who looks like they're struggling on the side of the road. Well, that's Rob. You know, more often than not, he could figure out what was wrong with the car. He maybe even had the tools in his car to be able to help. And, you know, how many different times do you think people left this encounter with Rob thinking that was a divine appointment? The fact that a mechanic drove by me and stopped. So over the years, Rob sort of expanded this personal ministry of his. He started fixing up old cars and then blessing people who were in need of a car. So maybe somebody donated a car that was no longer running and he might spend weeks or months working on the car and then he could give it to a family who was in need. You know, sometimes people would donate money and then he could purchase at a very low price a car that was pretty broken down but one that he thought he could fix up. So this personal ministry that he did, it just grew and grew and grew. So this is a picture on the top left of his home in Dallas-Fort Worth because they had to move. So they have just, I have been there a couple years ago, they have a modest-sized house, but they were able to build this giant garage on their property where in the garage they have, I believe it's two different lifts. They can house about eight vehicles in there, and then their entire property is just completely covered in old cars that Rob and the other people who help out are working on. And so this just became a personal ministry of his. And then last year, he was blessed with the fact that it became a full-time ministry for him. So he had gotten enough people to donate money on a regular basis that this became his full-time ministry. So on his website uh, for the salvage yard, there's a 10-minute video, and they explain you know, what it is that they do for people. And I just love this quote from his oldest daughter, Imogen. She said, they said, you know, is it worth it to do this? And she says, it isn't just about cars. It's helping people in need being like Jesus. 
You know, and that's another way of saying it displays God's glory. And then there was a really interesting question that the person doing the video asked my cousin Rob. He said, are you afraid that people are going to take advantage of you as you do this ministry? You know, in other words, are you afraid of being disappointed? And he said, you know, it's worth the risk. So let's watch uh, two minutes of the end of his video. Hopefully you can hear it. I know that um, they are helping people who you guys are in desperate need because I'm one of those people that they've been able to help. Uh, my wife was diagnosed with ALS and um, instantly Rob and Tiffany started working to help us out. We use that band to take care of my wife in that difficult time. Okay, so that was a two-minute video, um, and it ended with Matthew 25, verse 40, which takes us back to where we started. Um, and the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, and as much as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. So three good reasons to embrace personal ministry is because personal ministry makes an impact. Personal ministry is our commission from the Lord Jesus. And personal ministry displays God's glory. So as we close today, I just want to remind you that this trip that Jesus took from Galilee to Jerusalem, it was a one-way trip. It was his final trip. It's kind of a joke that I cry every time I preach. I should preach about Elijah calling fire down from heaven or something. But this was a one-way trip. Jesus was going to his crucifixion in Jerusalem. You know, days after he healed the ten lepers, he rode into Jerusalem on the 
colt of an ass with the people waving palm branches saying, Hosanna, son of David, save us. Hosanna means save us. And then a few days later, Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his 12. And we're going to remember that in just a few minutes. But imagine the disappointment as one of his 12 stood up and he was about to betray him to his enemies. Imagine the disappointment as his inner circle of Peter, James, and John couldn't even stay awake for one hour as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and a violent mob was coming to take him away. Or shortly after that, when Peter, his courageous, bold disciple, denied him three times and even cursed when he was accused of knowing Jesus. Imagine the disappointment when only John, of his twelve, was there at the foot of the cross. I had never really thought about it, but I almost wonder if the one coming back, the one leper coming back and thanking Jesus was almost a foreshadow of the fact that only one of his disciples would be with him at the cross. And they had seen all the miracles. You know, so the question is, was it a disappointment? I would say no. The crucifixion of Christ wasn't an inconvenient end to Jesus' ministry. It was his ministry's climactic moment of greatest impact. The crucifixion of Christ wasn't a complicated conclusion to his mission. It was the perfect fulfillment of his mission and of his father's commission to him. The crucifixion of Christ wasn't the ultimate disappointment. It was the ultimate display of God's glory because three days later was the resurrection. So we have a commission from Jesus, each one of us. We have his spirit inside of us. And we are called to treat other people like he treated them when he was on earth. We can't do exactly what he did, of course, but we can feed the hungry. We can comfort the sick. And I know that many of you already do that. And for those of you that do, you know, I just think of the chorus, little as much, When God is in it, labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown, and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much, God, for this passage of Scripture, Lord, which shows us many things, but it certainly shows us how you want us to treat other people. You want us to love other people, Lord, just like you loved us. So I just pray for those who heard the message this morning who are feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit, saying to themselves, I can do more. I can pray for somebody. I can go visit somebody in prison. Lord, I just pray that if that is the tug of their heart, that right now they will recommit to living that life that is so pleasing to you that it marks a true believer. Bless us today, now, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one who rose from the dead. Amen.